Thank you for coming out on such a dark and windy and rainy night, but I promise you Mick will be entertaining. After his presentation, he will do a quick rendition of Patsy Cline, Three Cigarettes in an Ashtray, and a quick dance. Um, seriously, though, uh, before we begin the proceedings, as is normally the case, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Gadigal people uh, of the Eora Nation on whose land we gather tonight, and it's the lands on which this university is built. As we all share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within these, this university, may we also pay respects to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of this country. Before uh, we move a bit further, could I ask people if they wouldn't mind to turn their mobile phones to silent or to turn them off, including me? Um, including me. Um, the format for tonight is a 30-minute presentation from Mick Gooder, uh, following which we will take questions from the floor. There is a microphone there. Um, the presentation is being recorded um, uh, for podcast later on the university webpage. So if you do have a question, I would ask you to use the microphone just so that we can make sure everybody in the room can hear, but at the same time, those that listen to the podcast later can think about the questions uh, that you raise. It's with some great pleasure that I introduce Mick Gooder. Um, he is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner with the Australian Human Rights Commission. Commissioner Gooder will argue that effective engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should drive the work in the three key areas he identifies in his presentation. His central thesis being that without effective engagement, the reconciliation agenda will stall. Mick is a Gungaloo man from central Queensland. His family, strange enough, is a countryman of mine. And the story goes that we actually didn't meet each other until we both worked in Western Australia. And I've had the pleasure of working with Mick for now maybe the last 18 odd years. Throughout that time, he has been a gentleman who has encouraged both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to think about the issues that beset us as a society and us as groups of people within the Australian society. He is a bloke that doesn't suffer fools and he encourages people to ask difficult questions. When I mean he doesn't suffer fools, he won't let people get away with stupid statements. It's about justifying yourself, it's about thinking about what you say and about putting your thoughts together in a coherent way that makes sense. Mick Gooder has filled roles variously as the Department of Social Security, as the Regional Manager of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission in Western Australia, sorry, the State Manager uh, for ATSIC in Western Australia, and um, uh, he was uh, the last employee of ATSIC, the last guy to turn the lights out when ATSIC closed its doors. And I think he has an unusual and very um, experience-based um, insight into the issues that he's going to present with us tonight. So with that, can I then introduce Commissioner Mick Gooder from the Australian Human Rights Commission. Thanks, Mick. Thank you, Shane. It is with some great honour and gratitude I begin tonight by paying my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners on the land where we gather. I pay my respects to their elders, both past and present, those who have come before us and those who will come after us. 
Like Shane said, I'm of the Gungaloo of Dawson Valley in central Queensland. And when I speak to my elders, they ask me to pass on to the traditional owners that I visit salutations for the, their continued fight for their country and their culture. I must also acknowledge my countryman, Professor Shane Houston. His appointment here as Deputy Vice-Chancellor is the first of its kind in Australia for an Aboriginal person. And Professor Houston, you do the Gungaloo Nation and indeed all Indigenous people in Australia proud. It's my pleasure to be here tonight to speak during Reconciliation Week. Last week, the 27th of May, the start of Reconciliation Week, is a significant date and one to be celebrated. It marks the anniversary of our most successful referendum and a defining moment in our nation's history. In 1967, over 90% of Australians voted to give the Commonwealth the power to make laws for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and to recognise us in the national census. So my address here tonight is, is titled Effective Engagement, the Tonic for a Reconciled Nation. I've chosen this because I truly believe unless we come together as Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and truly hear each other, truly understand each other and truly respect each other, reconciliation will remain ever elusive. If I may, I want to talk about three key areas that can advance the reconciliation agenda. My main focus will be on the need to take concrete actions on, on how the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People can improve relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and governments. I also want to discuss the importance of developing stronger and deeper relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the broader Australian population. And finally, I want to draw your attention to the nation-building and reconciliation opportunity that is upon us, the move to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Australian Constitution. As I've already stated, the consistent theme of this address is effective engagement, that is, the metaphorical sitting down together under a tree on equal, on equal grounds, planning a future for all of us. In February 2010, I began my five-year term as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner. In the following months, I travelled around Australia meeting with remote, regional and urban communities. I heard many stories and witnessed many things that are heartbreaking and disturbing particularly given that we live in one of the most richest, successful liberal democracies in the world. And I think it's simply unacceptable that Australia's First Peoples are the most vulnerable of this healthy, prosperous nation. Indeed, I believe we need to ask the question, can we ever be truly reconciled while we continue to live in such relative disadvantage and continue to remain on the margins of our society? But we need to have a framework, I think, a lens through which to address the disadvantage and advance reconciliation. And it is my belief that human rights provide such a framework. I further believe that reconciliation and human rights are intimately linked. At its core, human rights standards recognise that all people are born free and equal in dignity and rights. If different people are not free and equal, they cannot truly reconcile. Human rights are also useful because they provide governments 
and the people a set of minimum legal standards which have applied to all people everywhere establishes a framework for society to foster dignity and equality while celebrating difference. All of the challenges fronting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, effective engagement, poverty, education, health, the protection of culture and languages, incarceration rates, the protection of women and children are all human right issues. So how do we go about fixing this up? In relation to our people and human rights, we have a document that offers the ideal framework for a reconciled nation. This document, as I mentioned before, is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. In 2007, governments of the world through the General Assembly overwhelmingly adopted the declaration. At that time, Australia with Canada, New Zealand and the United States were the only nation states to vote against the declaration. Fortunately, they have all since reversed their position and now have given formal endorsement to it. Australia changed its position on 3rd of April 2009. In doing so, Minister Jenny Macklin said, Today, Australia changes its position. Today, Australia gives our support to the declaration. We do this in the spirit of resetting the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and building trust. The declaration gives us a new impetus to work together in trust and good faith to advance human rights and close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And there it is again, that link between reconciliation, effective engagement and human rights. So the Declaration contains the minimum standards for the survival, dignity and well-being of Indigenous peoples of the world. It reaffirms that Indigenous peoples are entitled to all human rights recognised in international law without discrimination. But it also acknowledges that without recognising our collective rights of, as Indigenous people and ensuring that our cultures survive, Indigenous people can never be truly free and equal. I believe the Declaration provides a necessary guidance to government in the, in the development of new narratives, practices, philosophies and opportunities. I agree with Minister Macklin. The Declaration does give us this new impetus to work together. This is because the Declaration is about creating new relationships based on partnership, mutual respect and honesty. And I think in that way the Declaration provides us with a roadmap to reconciliation. But some people have questioned whether Australia is obliged to implement the Declaration. After all, it's just a Declaration. Some who have led us to believe that it's an instrument of division have questioned if it would be beneficial to implement at all. Yet the preambular paragraph 18 affirms that the General Assembly of the United Nations is convinced that the recognition of the rights of Indigenous people in this declaration will enhance the harmonious and cooperative relations between states and Indigenous peoples. I think this is the primary task if we are ever to achieve reconciliation. Meanwhile, others have tried to dismiss it on the basis that it is not legally binding. Yet Article 38 says, States in consultation with Indigenous people shall take appropriate measures, including legislative measures, to achieve the ends of the declaration. And Article 42 
says that states shall promote respect for and full application of the provision of this declaration and follow up the effectiveness of this declaration. Furthermore, the declaration doesn't actually contain any new rights. Rather, in one document, it contains existing human rights standards enshrined in international law and interprets them as they apply to Indigenous peoples. So clearly there are strong legal as well as moral arguments for its implementation. But legal arguments aside, I think what a monumental bad show of bad faith it would be for the Australian government having endorsed a declaration, a document that not a single country in the world now opposes, to not commit to its implementation. However, that since the formal declaration over two years ago, progress has been slow. And it's my understanding about the, the, the lack of agreement about what implementation looks like, and I think this is impeding any action. So now it's time to start seriously thinking about and seriously planning about how we turn those fine words into action. We need to build the capacity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, of government and of any other relevant players on how to engage and give full effect to this declaration. Everyone needs to familiarise themselves with it. And I think we can use learnings from other areas of human rights sphere to help us with this. Of particular importance are the core principles in the Declaration, such as the right to participate in decisions about our lives, self-determination, free prior informed consent and non-discrimination. We need to use these principles as a guide for us and should inform the practices of government in working with us. To ground this in reality, it has to be understood that the relationship between governments and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples has been badly damaged by the consistent imposition of policies and legislations that are designed and implemented with the object, objective of codependency and control, rather than our independence to determine our own destinies. To do this, governments should seek to empower us through effective participation to be agents of our own change. We are an important part of the solution to our life situations. The establishment of the National Congress of Australia's First People, which is about to have its first sitting next week here in Sydney, goes some way to developing a national mechanism for engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But beyond Congress, it is essential that governments develop an effective framework for the engagement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in order to generate positive relationships. A framework of engagement needs to be mandated across all government departments, developing and implementing policies and programs that affect us. Crucially, the framework must be based on the key principles and objectives of the Declaration. I don't underestimate the challenge that effective participation grounded in the Declaration poses for governments. It requires a true resetting of the way governments have conducted business with us, have related to us in the past. And changing the way governments do things can sometimes be akin to turning around a very large ship. However, I think the Declaration provides us guidance on how to undertake this necessary reform through the principles of free, prior and informed consent. Free, prior and informed consent is a universally recognised right to give or not to give our consent before certain actions 
affecting us can occur. In speaking to people in government, I often detect an anxiety about this, particularly in relation to a right of veto. But the right to free prior informed consent, as Kenneth Deer, a First Nations leader from Canada, puts it, is not automatically a veto, since our human rights exist relative to the other rights to the rights of others. Nor is there any reference to a veto in the Declaration. Free prior and informed consent is a means of us participating on an equal footing in decisions that affect us. It recognises Indigenous peoples' inherent rights and existing rights and respects our legitimate authority to require that third parties enter into equal and respectful relationships with us based on the principle of informed consent. This principle applies not only to administrative acts and decisions and the exploitation of our resources and lands, but also to the legislative processes itself. Article 19 of the Declaration states that states shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the Indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free, prior and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them. What this means is that consultation in a practical sense must be extended to reflect the requirement to effectively negotiate. Too often governments in Australia interpret their obligation to consult with Indigenous people more like a duty to tell us what's been developed on our behalf and what will eventually be imposed upon us, rather than involving us in developing solutions that will best address our issues and our priorities. Given that governments still seem mystified by consultation, let me illustrate some features of a meaningful and effective consultation process, drawing on the spirit and intent of the Declaration. The objective of consultation should be to obtain the consent or agreement of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples affected by a proposed measure. It should be the product of consensus and should be in the nature of negotiations. Consultations need to begin early and should, where necessary, be ongoing. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people must have access to financial, technical and other assistance. We must not be pressured into making a decision. An adequate time frame should be built into consultation processes. The relationships needed to underpin this type of consultation will take time to develop. They will also require people with appropriate skills and cultural competency to work with us and communities and, where necessary, the development of targeted education and training programs to build these skills and competencies. But this type of transformation is necessary to, do, to address our disadvantage, improve our relationships with governments and progress reconciliation. When the national apology was made to Australia's Indigenous peoples in February 2008, I believed Australia was ready for this new, stronger, deeper relationship with its First Peoples. On that day, I believed there was a palpable sense of us coming together as a nation. Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples sat together, held each other and cried together. I think the nation took a, took a great leap forward that day. However, since that time, we seem to have lost our way a little bit. It's my view that if we are to improve the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, we must build the understanding of each other. And this requires us to disregard preconceptions. The elephant in the room in this debate 
for me is racism. It must be addressed. Despite Australia's, Australians being justifiably proud that theirs is the land of the fair go, racism unfortunately remains fairly common. Recent surveys conducted amongst 12,000 people found that approximately 90% of respondents consider that racial prejudice is still a problem in Australia. The Australian Reconciliation Barometer shows that 93% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander participants and 71% of non-Indigenous participants still feel there are high levels of prejudice between the two groups. Until this is confronted, we cannot really reconcile as a nation. So consequently, we must have a zero tolerance for racism in all its forms. And surely, if we don't, this undermines our sense of a fair go. Because at its core, reconciliation must be about recognising and embracing difference with mutual respect. Human rights standards are also useful here as they place people at the centre of this activity. Of particular relevance for me is paragraph two of the Declaration which recognises Indigenous people's right to be different. Now what this means in practice is that that is not the responsibilities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to assimilate into the mainstream. Rather, it's a responsibility on all of us, black or white, governments and private citizens, to be inclusive and to accommodate difference. To do this, we need to develop ways of engaging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander views and perspectives into mainstream Australia. We are currently presented with an opportunity for nation building and reconciliation through the move to recognise us in the Australian constitution. I firmly believe that this is the right time, right here and now, for Australian people to formally play out that recognition about the special place and the unique place Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hold in our nation. Constitutional recognition can be the vehicle to increasing and improving our, our own sense of self-worth, our resilience, our relationship with the broader Australian community and our relationships with government. All of these things can lead towards the goal of a reconciled nation. That is why I welcome the commitments of Labor, the Coalition and the Greens to a referendum to facilitate such recognition. And there's also been a great level of support from the independents since the 2010 election, so in all likelihood I reckon we'll be voting in about two years' time. And referendums are these rare moments in time where we, the people, rather than our elected representatives, have the opportunity to direct the transformation of the nation and its identity. The prospect of this referendum will provide us all with a great opportunity to reframe and reset our relationships as a nation and to establish new relationships that open our hearts and minds to new possibilities. Australia is the home to the oldest living cultures in the world and this is something that each and every Australian should be proud of and be proud to assert as part of our national identity, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander identity. Currently, there is no mention of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples or of the fact that the history of our country, as opposed to our nation, began many, many years before British colonisation. The Attorney-General recently referred to the Constitution as our nation's birth certificate. The current Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia has referred to it as defining our legal universe. 
Our nation's birth certificate, therefore, should represent our full history, our diverse cultures and the true spirit of our nation. It should reflect our complete genealogy and not just one part of the family tree. This opportunity not only provides us with a chance to reconstruct our national identity through recognition, it will also allow us to remove provisions within the body of the Constitution that permit, enable or anticipate racial discrimination, namely Section 5126 and Section 25. I'm not going to go into great detail on these issues today and to what the different ideas for reform will be. If you are interested, there is a lot of information on the experts' panel discussion paper and my paper titled Creating a Nation for All of Us. However, this process will give this generation of Australians the opportunity to say yes, an opportunity to demonstrate the goodwill and innate decency like 90% of Australians did in 1967. I made reference to the National Apology earlier. It was a recon reconciling moment. My predecessor, Tom Calmer, described it as thus. A day our leaders across a political spectrum have chosen dignity and hope and respect as the guiding principles for the relationship with our nation's first peoples. Through one direct act, Parliament has acknowledged the existence and the impacts of past policies and practices of forcibly removing Indigenous children from their families. By acknowledging and paying respect, Parliament has now laid the foundation for the healing to take place and for a reconciled Australia in which everyone belongs. The National Apology marked an opportunity for Parliament to acknowledge the past and build towards a reconciled future. I believe the current opportunity for con constitutional reform to recognise us in the, as part of this nation offers the, op the Australian population the same opportunity. As the debate around constitutional reform ramps up, there will be more and more people saying that it is just a symbolic act and what we really need is practical action. I don't believe that these two concepts are mutually exclusive. And I ask the question, if that's the case, why can't we have both? Symbols are important for nation building and for reconciliation. They are reminders of our collective past and guidance towards our collective futures. They are things upon which practical actions should be built. Larissa Berent clearly identifies the practical effects of symbols. She says, symbolic recognition that could alter the way Australians see their history will also affect their views on the kind of society they would like to become. It would alter the symbols and sentiments Australia use, Australians use to express their identity and their ideals. It would change the context in which debates around Aboriginal issues take place. It would alter the way the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians is conceptualised. These shifts will begin to permeate them. In this way, the long-term effects of symbolic recognition could be quite substantial. I think constitutional reform and the journey to get there can be just as powerful in recognising our place in this nation. The journey for constitutional recognition has well and truly begun and builds on the fight for equality over many years. We are now engaged in a process towards this referendum, like I said, in about two years' time. But in order to achieve success, we have much to do. 
To be successful, a referendum requires a double majority. A majority of people in the majority of states must vote yes. In, creating a, in, in the creating a nation for all of us, I looked at the history of referendums and drawing on the work of constitutional expert George Williams, identified some critical factors that are essential for success. These include bipartisan political support. While we have it at the moment, it will be critical to maintain that support up until the referendum. And we, just, we know just how hard it is to get politicians to agree, especially if either side thinks there's a possible wedge somewhere in amongst all of this. Popular ownership of the referendum process. Australians historically will not vote yes for a proposal that has been foisted upon them. Each and every Australian has the right to participate in this conversation. And finally, popular education about the Constitution and the proposed reform. In order to progress this dialogue and increase understanding, the Australian Government has established an expert panel to report to it on options for constitutional recognition. I am proud to be an ex-officio member of the expert panel and I will be urging the panel to keep these factors front and centre in our minds as we undertake the tasks given to us. So over the next two years there will be debates, speeches, opinion pieces in the press, bloggers responding to articles, people prowling the parliamentary corridors, constitutional lawyers at ten paces, naysayers and yaysayers, documentaries, panel discussions, arguments at dinner parties, barbecues and in front bars. All of these things should happen. And it's precisely all of these things, just like the work we did leading up to the National Apology, that will build awareness, focus minds and hearts and help us move forward as a nation. It is essential that we engage the entire nation in this debate to inform them and educate them on the Constitution and that by finally and formally settling and affirming the place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in our nation, that we all grow in stature. This will be a long journey. It'll be a hard journey. But I think it's a journey that will mark our maturity as a nation. And it's not just in destination, as important as it may be. It's not about looking back. It's about looking forward and moving forward towards the goal of true reconciliation. So in order to get to this destination, like I said, we have much to do. But this is the type of exercise that builds the healthy relationships necessary for what I call an agenda of hope. Relationships are built on understanding, dialogue, tolerance, acceptance, respect, trust and reciprocated affection not intolerance, a lack of acceptance, a lack of dialogue, mistrust and a lack of respect and understanding. As a nation, I think we must grasp this opportunity to reset the relationship. As I said at the outset, I believe effective engagement is the tonic for reconciliation and I encourage all of you to read the available resources, become familiar with and engage in this once-in-a-generation opportunity for reconciliation that is the the constitutional reform process. I encourage you to be more inclusive, to put yourself in other people's shoes and to listen to other voices. I encourage you to familiarise yourself with the human rights standards such as the Declaration that recognises that all people are equal in dignity and rights. Without, without us, the people, reconciliation is just a pipe dream. 
And after all, reconciliation is not about me, it's not about you. It's about all of us and the shared vision for this land we all call home. If I may, I want to end with a poem written by one of our fighters in the struggle, Udiru Nunakal, or as she's also known, Kath Walker. I am honoured to have known Udiru in her later years, and the poem I want want to recite is one that she wrote for her son, Dennis. I think she captured the spirit of reconciliation, of looking ahead rather than backward. Indeed, she was a woman before her time. The poem is called Son of Mine. And it goes like this. My son, your troubled eyes search mine, puzzled and hurt by colour line. Your black skin soft as velvet shine. What can I tell you, son of mine? I could tell you of heartbreak and hatred blind. I could tell you of crimes that shame mankind, of brutal wrongs and deeds malign, of rape and murder, son of mine. But instead I'll tell you of brave and fine when lives of black and white entwine and men in brotherhood combine. This I would tell you, son of mine. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. A stirring speech that finishes with a stirring poem. Now's your opportunity to ask questions of Nick, to explore issues and to basically try and tease out some of the thoughts that are in your minds and hearts and those that Nick has introduced us to tonight. Would you like to start at the microphone if you wouldn't mind? Thanks very much for the presentation. Uh, My question's about the process of the referendum in the next couple years. Um, My understanding is that there's potentially also going to be a referendum proposed on recognising local government in the Constitution, and I was just wondering if you have a tactical preference for keeping Aboriginal recognition as a separate referendum question or whether or not it would impact on the result of this debate if they were both on the same ballot. Um, uh, While we haven't really discussed this formally as an expert panel, I think I'm safe in saying we certainly want the referendum on the recognition to be held not during the next election. My my personal opinion on this, I think the next election is going to be one of the most bitter we've ever seen in this country. And I think it's a bit unbelievable to have that going on and the two leaders say, by the way, can you vote for um, this Uh, vote yes in this referendum. Similarly, uh, I think uh, what we know about referendum in this country is if Australians get confused, I can almost guarantee you, uh, and you look at the the analysis of the the Republic referendum back in 1999, almost everyone who was undecided voted no. So if people are confused and not clear about um, what we're asking them to say yes to, they will generally vote no. Uh, I think our preference would be to go to the referendum separately. Um, that uh, that the I, I think our, our our first there's there's a few processes in in the in the referendum pro, uh, process that we've got to get in mind. This, this panel will report to government in December. The panel the government will then decide how what it's going to do with the recommended 
recommendations we give. And then after that, there will be an Act of Parliament introduced to, to, to facilitate the referendum. Now, my, my sense is that they will put both together. Right? And I think you know, it, it's generally estimated that it costs about $40 million to run a referendum. But I just can't see them doing two at the same... Uh, you know, not the same time, but doing two separate referenda. Um, so our challenge in the first place for us is um, with the passage of the bill, for instance, um, if, if not one parliamentarian votes against the passage of the bill, there's no compulsion to run a no case. In 1967, the government never ran a no case because no one voted against the proposed legislation or the legislation that set up the proposed referendum. So our first challenge is that, to get that through parliament. And again, I think it's better if it's not... I think. Um, at the moment, some polls are telling us 75% of Australians agree with recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution, so it's a fairly high base. I'm not that confident that the same number would agree to recognise local government. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm honestly dead set not sure. But so, so for that reason alone, I think we would probably like to go ahead, but I think the pragmatics and the practicalities of it the best we're going to get is that it won't be run in conjunction with the next election, but it probably will be run in conjunction with the referendum on, on constitutional recognition of local government. I'm told that only that, that, that sort of thing um, only takes about another two words in the constitution. So they already recognise states and it will be in local government. Um, but I think that may have the potential to... to um, draw a lot closer scrutiny than ours. Although, I think ours presents us with some difficulties as well. Like, those things that we know about uh, the re referendum, it's got to be simple. It's got to be something that, that people understand. It's got to... If it actually is seen to, to preference or advantage one group over another, it probably won't get up. The challenge for us, Indigenous people, is to actually get something that meets all that criteria, but is so bland it becomes meaningless. So that's, that's the challenge that we're going to face as we go through this part about um, uh, consulting with the community. Um, there's a, um, a, a website that we're using as a main, main tool to have this conversation. It's called You Me Unity. So if you go on Google You Me Unity, you'll get into our website where the discussion papers and the blogs and surveys and there's a whole range of things you can undertake in there. There's all the social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, so young people particularly can engage with it. Um, that's, that was launched last week. So I, I'd encourage everyone to get it because if we don't take a view to government about and have some good, good solid evidence backing us up about how we consulted and the number of people that spoke to us, even if it's via the web... Um, um, government might not take our recommendations on board. They've already said, Jenny Macklin's already said, we're not going to commit to implementing everything that the panel recommends. I don't have that much of a problem with that because I don't think any government should defer to a panel like us. We elect people for that. Um, our job is to make the evidence so strong that they've got to, they, they can't refuse to do what we recommend. So I know that's a long-winded way of answering your question. One, I don't think we'll end up with a separate referendum for both. That presents difficulty because, like I say, the more confused Australians become, um, the more likely they will vote no. Um, back in 1944, there was a referendum that I think had asked 14 questions and none of them got up. 
Funny enough, it was the first time the question got asked, that was again asked in 1967, about um, removing that section of um, section 5226, uh, about the Commonwealth not able to make laws on behalf of Aboriginal people. That was in 1944, so back in 1967 it got up. But in, in 1944 it was amongst 14, 13 other questions. So our job is to actually do that somehow. But mind you, with only two, two words to alter in the constitution to recognise local government, we might get away with it. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. I actually work in local government, um, but I come from a different perspective, and that's the engagement perspective. And I wonder whether the engagement with... Um, federal and state government, as fine as it is, also may, not, may ignore a very significant area of engagement through local communities. And one of the th tools, for example, in New South Wales that's used is, is a, an integrated planning framework that councils use to engage with the community. So I'm wondering whether, in fact, that's an area that's been neglected, and particularly given that local government areas have been areas of significant discrimination and... Uh, and bad history in terms of dealings with the Aboriginal people in the past and even today. Uh, so I raise that question. And secondly, the engagement also involving so many of our people in Australia, particularly in Western and Southwestern Sydney and other areas, metropolitan areas, where we have a very significant proportion of people who are born overseas who have got really very little idea of what you're talking about and how this can be addressed in a way that reaches them uh, we've got a city where 40% of our people are born overseas. So, so how do we, can we advance that particular area as well in terms of engagement with those people to bring them into, in, into support with the same sorts of areas that I think we were talking about before? Okay, I think, I think the, the, the issue of local government, I think they are the, you know, the, the, form, the level of government that actually engages more with local people. You know, they give property... You know, approval to renovate everything. You know, they do all that stuff. So the way it is is set up, and I think there is a bit we can learn from the way local government engages with with their constituents. Um, I, I think what I will be advocating is that, a, that the basis of our engagement is based on rights. Now, I, the, the, the declaration talks about the right to participate in decisions that affect us. That's that's a human right. It's expressed in a way that that meets the needs of Indigenous people in the Declaration, but that's a human right. Free, prior and informed consent is a human right. The right to self-determination is a human right. So I think um, I'm negotiating with government now about how do we actually you know, empower people to take up what they do. In my social justice report I launched in February, there's, a, there's an article on, there's a chapter on, on Fitzroy Crossing. Now Fitzroy Crossing in, in the Kimberley was racked with suicides and violence, and particularly the women took took a chance, took 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 a stand on it. And I think it's a great chapter to highlight because I I really don't want to keep writing. I think we get enough people writing about the bad things. So I'm going to try to concentrate on the good things that happen in our communities and what can we learn from those. And what we learned from Fitzroy Crossing is that when government and Aboriginal people empower themselves and are supported appropriately by government, the engagement's real, not the imposition of, of what um, 
government thinks might be best for us. So that's the basis you've got to start from. It's, it's, it, for me, it's, I don't want people to say we're going to engage with Aboriginal people because we love them and we want to give them a hug. I want them, the basis of all this is our right. And, and that's the rights that we all have. So I think that's the first thing. I think there's been communities, and I've worked in communities, Shane's worked in communities, Nari's worked in communities, that are probably not capable of taking control. They are so dysfunctional they can't do that. Now, at the end of the day, government's got to be there. You know, I, I speak about um, the rights of children. And I, if I do anything in education, it's going to be about school attendance. And I say to people, it's a human right to be educated. The Charter of Human Rights that we developed as, a, as a, the world in 1948 decided not only is education a right, but that primary school, elementary school they called it, should be compulsory. Now, if kids aren't getting access to a right, who speaks for kids? This is the, point, this is the debate we should have. Not that people are bad or awful parents, but the question should become who speaks for kids. And if we engage properly, you know, the first step should be parents. What do we need to support parents to do that stuff? But at the end of the day, the parents still become all our recalcitrant. At the end of the day, it's a state that speaks for kids. That's the reality. Same as dysfunctional communities. But what the aim should be to get them to the point where they can make decisions on their behalf. You know, it's like Shane's run forever. The primary health care argument, comprehensive primary health care is the way to fix up the problems. It's not, health's not going to be fixed up in hospitals. So if we support people, we support communities to get to the point where they can make decisions about their own lives instead of just continuing to make decisions, I think that's the way to go. Because if, if we do that, that's all we'll ever do is make decisions for people. So I think that... Um, as for the second part of your question about the, the, the people coming from overseas, I, I think um, I despair for them because I actually see what we've gone through over the last 50-odd years. And I just despair about how they're going to engage. And, and, you know, it's the same question we were talking before we came here tonight about Murujulu out near Uluru. You know, people think they can go out there and develop an alcohol management plan in six months. It'll take two years, you know. Not only are they dealing with and grappling with really complex issues around alcohol, because, you know, 15 minutes from their communities, you know, a $360 million resort, that serves plenty of alcohol. So they're grappling with that. Then you add on the top that English is a second, probably a third language, and people think they're going to go out there and engage and have an alcohol management plan in about six months. I, 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 think, I said to them, I think you'll end up with your management plan. You won't end up with theirs. And that's the point about it. How do you get them up to the point? So I really despair for immigrants in Western Sydney having to deal with this massive bureaucracy. And I go back to what I said in my speech about the right to be different. You know, it's actually, we have the right to be different. We have the right for that difference to be respected. So it shouldn't be the individuals who are different who have to navigate their way through this massive bureaucracy. It should build bureaucracies and systems, I'm told, not only cope with difference but celebrate it. So I, I hold some grave, grave um, concerns for those people out in Western Sydney because I just see what we go through. 
Thank you for the speech. Um, Helen Irving last year wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald that um, any invocation of Indigenous rights within the Constitution might meet the same opposition that met the National Human Rights Consultation that ended last year. Um, with the expert panel that was recently established, I mean, how do you think that um, the expert panel might reconcile the need to um, you know, recognise Indigenous rights within the Constitution with any traditional opposition to formal recognition of rights? Well, see, we don't know what we're going to recognise yet. And, and this, is, this is the first question we've got to address, is what are we recognising? Are we, are we recognising rights or are we recognising our prior ownership? Are we recognising our connection with country and land? Are we recognising our culture? So one of the first things we've got to do is, is recognise that, well, understand that. Um, and... and it's almost stating the bleeding obvious, you know, like we were all sitting around one day thinking, what are we recognising? So that's the first question. Um, like I said in response to the first question, that um, anything that seemed to advantage one group over another, even Aboriginal people, won't get up. And, and, and then some of the challenges, if I can just talk, the challenge facing us, right, um, in, in Section um, 25 states can disqualify people voting, from voting on the basis of race. Now, the last time we, we can find that happened was in the Gulf country in Queensland in about 1965, so a lot of us were born then. Um, probably not you. But, and it came from the pressure of the white people saying if all these Aboriginal people vote for one person, they could even elect an Aboriginal member. So the state fixed that up by just disqualifying all Aboriginal people from voting. Now, we think as a panel, that's pretty outdated in, in, in the 21st century here in Australia. The fact that in section 5226 that special laws can be made on for particular races is a problem because there's nothing in, in, in the constitution that requires that those laws be for the benefit of people. So we're struggling with that as well because we think if we... There's a feeling amongst people I'd talk to in Aboriginal Affairs, we don't probably... We, we want to be recognised somewhere, so it could be in the body or the preamble, and what we're told is, um, uh, for instance, if it's in the preamble, we've got to write a whole new preamble because we can't change it. The preamble is actually part of the British Act that set up the Australian Constitution, so we probably have to re rewrite an, a whole new preamble. Um, but if we took out the parts that have been used against us we, uh, without, you know, it's almost a, a sin of omission rather than commission that we, we, we wouldn't have the ability to be discriminated against with, if you, you remove section 25 and fixed up section 52. That might satisfy us and then the recognition would happen. So I think that's, that's what we're struggling with. And, and there's even some people on the panel that look at South Africa's constitution and it talks, doesn't talk about race. And is the whole concept of race an outdated thing in the 21st century because about the only race they can identify in Australia these days is us like what other races are there you know are you going to during the war they interned all the Germans and took them away to a camp but I think that would be a pretty tough call these days to work out who's German in this country but Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are a bit different so I think maybe removing those the ability of the, the constitution to discriminate against us so the challenge we've got is if, if we run the line that race is an outdated concept, how do you then recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? 
So, uh, yeah, there's a few conundrums and questions that we've got to answer with this. So, but I don't think we'll get to the point where we'll have any rights in there. Not unless we can argue that maybe, you know, there's a possibility of using Section 52 to just have a non-discrimination clause in there somehow. So, you know, they use Section 50... I'm saying 51, I think it's 52, I think it's 51. They actually use that to um, facilitate the intervention in the Northern Territory. Now, the problem with putting something in there that says it's got to be of benefit, well, the government argued that the intervention is of benefit to us. So, again, it becomes something that you would ask the courts to decide. We don't know whether we want to go down that track. So even putting, uh, adding a clause in that Section 51 can only be used for our benefit still creates problems for us. Again, we've got to come up with something simple that sort of addresses all of this. My question, uh, getting a, a little bit away from the constitutionalism of, I guess, uh, what you've been talking about, would be really uh, where in all of this, in terms of identifying Indigenous aspirations about formal recognition, where does the sovereign personality of Aboriginal Australia fall within all of this? The what personality? The sovereign personality. Well, I, I think this is going to be an interesting concept because, you know, people are now talking about the concept of sovereignty and what does it mean in the 21st century. Are we sovereign people? And there's people who will argue that um, no-one ever ceded sovereignty in this country, so we're still all sovereign people. I'm, I'm a fairly practical sort of fella, and I, I sort of am reminded of, of one of our great leaders, Chicka Dixon, years ago at a conference, said, brothers and sisters, I've come to a conclusion that I really need to share. And what's that, Chicka? Well, I reckon these white people aren't going home. <laughs> and we've just got to get on. And it's, it's true. So I, I, I think this, the panel's made a really strong decision to say we've got to engage with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and whatever we come up with has to meet their needs, our needs. And if we can't get agreement on that, we would probably recommend that the, concept, the referendum not go ahead. So it's going to present challenges. I know there are... There are a lot of people out there. There's no, well, I don't know how many, but there's a fair few saying, well, if we don't get sovereignty, we don't get rights recognised in the in the referendum, I'll vote against it and I'll agitate to vote against it. So I think that sovereignty is going to be a really difficult issue for the panel to grapple with. Um, I think we're, we're planning on, on how we actually... You know, Noel Pearson came out and said we should hold a plebiscite before um, we go ahead. I don't know how we do that, given that there's not an Aboriginal role somewhere. We tried that with ATSIC, it didn't quite work. So I, 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 I think the concept of sovereignty has to be explored. I don't think it's going to be um, uh, something that can be easily you know, meet that criteria, let's do something simple there. Um, because sovereignty these days, the whole concept of sovereignty is now advancing in the, in the 21st century. I've got friends that talk about their personal sovereignty as opposed to sovereignty as a mob. How do you reconcile all of that stuff? So that question is going to present the panel with some really difficult moments, I think. We'd be happy to continue the discussion on it and join in.
got a question on trust. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, the Reconciliation Australia produces a barometer every two years, and it measures the relationship between Australians and non-Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And for the past, in 2008 and again in 2010, the level of trust was at about 10% in both camps, um, you know, give or take a percentage point or two. If anything, it's getting worse. So. I'm sure it's important for constitutional reform because you want to have a bit more trust in that if, if people are going to come up and vote on something. But constitutional reform aside, it's, I think it's an important issue for Australia just you know, as a country. So I'd just like to hear what your thoughts on it, what we can do to help improve that, that degree of trust. Um, and, yeah, that's basically yep. it. OK, look, I'm, I tell people I'm not a romantic when I say this. But if we don't have trust in the relationship, it just won't work. That, that's, that's real. That, that if you're going to have proper relationships, you need trust. Shane um, did a presentation last June when we asked him to reflect on the National Aboriginal Health Strategy and how we end up with that. And he talked about the fear people had of coming to the room together. Aboriginal people had fear of non-Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people had this fear because we were involving people who'd never met at that intersection before. And I think that's, that's a really big part of this. It's fear. Because people hear the stereotypes about Aboriginal people being violent. You know, you, if, if you was an alien and landed here and you read all the stuff, what's happening in the Northern Territory, you know, you wouldn't think there are beautiful communities up there full of people looking after their kids and fathers respecting their kids and working hard, and there are. So they feel with the stereotype about fear, and I, I think the media play a real big part in this. I, I don't, I'm not one to bash the media, because I think we, in a healthy democracy we need an open media that criticises and that finds these things out. But when they keep on portraying Aboriginal people in a certain light, you know... It's almost, a friend of mine describes it as the pervasiveness of everything. It's not just one Aboriginal person bad, it's a whole lot. It's a stereotyping. I could see Nari Brown down the middle here and she told me once a story, because she's a doctor, and she said, one of her friends said, you're the only Aboriginal person I know. And she said, why don't you think we're all doctors then? <laughs> if I'm the only person you know and you want to stereotype them, you think we all should be doctors. So I think it's fear. And I think, the, you know, it, it goes back to the comments I made in, in, in my speech about sim, symbolism, people coming together, getting to know each other. It's very important. This is really small, practical steps, you know. I don't know how many people I run across who say, you know, you're the first Aboriginal people I met, and I said, I don't believe that. You probably met lots of Aboriginal people in your life because we're not all black. We don't come. We come in all shapes and sizes and colours. So I, I dare say you've met lots of Aboriginal people. So I think it's really important that 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 we break down that fear. I think I don't. I, I actually think it's this fear. I remember when I was um, Shane mentioned I worked in social security. Now just outside Rockhampton, there's a big mission. That's my grandmother's mission, where my mum was born on that called Warabinda. Now, you can imagine, it's two hours outside Rocky, and you can imagine the stories Brockhampton people have of Warabinda. So I just noticed, I was a young fellow thinking, you know, um, 
Um, there's just the urban myths about Warabinda and all this. So I decided to take counter-officers. They're the people on the front line. I used to go to Warabinda every fortnight to do um, a visit and fix people's social security questions. And I decided to take one out. It took me a year to get the whole lot out. And it changed their mind forever about Aboriginal people. And the first comment, like it was, it was they would all do the same thing because we'd leave about six o'clock in the morning. We'd have coffee and breakfast at a little roadhouse and then they'd start getting talkative. They'd be talkative until we hit the dirt. Then they knew we were getting close to Warabinda. And then they'd start shifting in their seats. And, and you sort of get to Warabinda, you come over this hill and, you, and Warabinda's down there like that. And every one of them would say the same thing. It's a little town. It's like a little town. And I'd say, what did you expect? You know, they'd spend a day there and you couldn't shut them up driving home because they'd heard all these awful things about Warabinda. But they'd say things, people are more open. I can't believe, I see that person in the counter in Rockhampton. They come along there and they were just different. I said, well, we're on their country. This is different. They're in their territory. Not, they're not in ours. We broke, in you know, one year, we didn't plan it. I just sort of thought we'd get people out there to understand what happens. It changed the whole nature of that office by a simple thing of taking um, people out to meet mob on their, on their own country. So breaking down that fear, fear factor, I think that's what leads to mistrust and, and people are a bit scared of it. But Shane's okay. I think Nari's okay. Vlad's okay, I reckon. You know, we're okay people. Come along, talk to us. We've probably got the same problems as you have, you know. <laughs> So I, I, I really think we've got to be really conscious about breaking, building, breaking down the fear and building that trust. I don't think, you can, I don't think it's, it's a little thing at all. I think it's a big thing. But again, I keep on going back to think we, with this double majority we've got to get, we've got to aim for 90% like we did in 67. Falling over the line will do nothing for this country. Failing is, can't even be conceived you know, I, I don't think we can even think about it. If I thought we were going to fail, I'd say, I'd vote. Don't even do it now. 90%. And, and, and again, I frame it like I did. I, I really believe that this conversation has the chance to change that relationship. Like it did in 1967. And break down that fear. Go and talk to people. You know, I, I just, just think this is... I, I, I think if opportunities come along to us once in a lifetime... I was nine in, in, in 19, I was 11 in 1967. I didn't vote, funny enough. But this time I will. You know, and this time we've got, to, we've got to get it right. So I think this, 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 this is something... We've, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about getting out there, talking to people who don't even believe in it and trying to convince them to vote yes, because I think we can do that. Because we've got to apply to, you know, we've got to appeal to that innate sense of fair go that Australians are all proud of. And so, do you think it's a fair go that 1965 Aboriginal people weren't allowed to vote simply because they might vote one of their own? 
Is that what we want in this country? And we can still do that. The state government can still do that. So I think the question's really appropriate, and I think it's really the key to the key to getting this up, and that's trust. And I think we've just got to... I think there's nothing... You know, you're not going to order people to be trusting of each other. It's little steps like this, go on talking to people, go on participating, you know? Because there is this fear. You know? we, we're always... It's about racism. We're always on our guard wherever we are because someone's going to say something nasty and it's going to be fight or flight. And, and, the, and, the, and the problem we've got with that, in an instant like that, you've got to, we've got to make a decision. What's going to stress us more? To say something or not to say something? So we're scared of it too. You know, We're scared of these engagements. We, we don't know what's going to be said or what... I, I, I think it's really important that we, we build that trust and, and break down those fears. I think you can only do that person by person almost. That's, that's the only way it's going to be done. So thanks for the question. No, sorry, yes? We might make this the last question. Um, thank you for... Thank you for coming. Um, the UN Human Rights uh, Commission, of, or the Commission of Human Rights, came last week and gave a report in regards to Australia's human rights record, and criticised the Gillard government in regards to um, what has been achieved in regards to Aboriginal rights. Um, how, I would like to get your views of how you think that will be effective of this uh, international legitimacy of ensuring that Australia is a cannibal um, of achieving these rights, and whether or not this is more like a marketing scheme in one sense. I just missed that last bit. Uh, whether or not it's like a marketing scheme, whether or not it's a short-term strategy, or you see this as a step forward to ensuring that they're accountable um, to make sure that Aboriginal rights are accounted for. <coughs> I'm, I'm reminded of... Um, I, 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 I was proud to recite one of Ujuru's poems. Now, back in the 60s, Ujuru was, was part of a group of people called Fakatsi, um, what was it? The Federal Council for the Advancement of Aboriginal Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders, and and they engaged in the politics, what they call the politics of embarrassment. Now, the, back in 1965, we were, we were as a country we were thinking about um, um, signing up to CERD, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. And in Queensland, why does it always have to be Queensland? Um, there was a Premier there who said we can't pay award wages to Aborigines because they haven't developed enough to manage money. Now, 1965 was around the time there was a lot of decolonised nations coming into the United Nations. Africa and Asia more particularly, and they sort of got sick of Australia um, uh, keep on harassing and, and berating them about human rights. And, and so they started putting... And, and people like Kath Walker and Faith Bandler and um, uh, others started to agitate internationally. And it was actually that pressure that, you know, because they started saying in the United Nations... Australia cannot ratify this convention while you have a Premier in Queensland doing this sort of stuff. So at the end of the day, without any, any 
sort of support, and, and this is how people really felt about the intervention. Because, because it, 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 when the, in 2007, when the intervention was uh, legislated, um, everyone supported it. We didn't have any hope in Australia. Who do we appeal to? We tried everything. I was working, Shane and I were working in the Northern Territory at the time. We had no choice but to do the international thing. And again, do what Kath and Faith and those people did back in the 60s, and that was using the politics of embarrassment. Because at the end of the day, Australia really... One thing I've learnt about going overseas, is, and particularly now we engage with the overseas missions, is they really love their international reputation. And it's like Navi Pillay said last week, the High Commissioner, you know. You know, she was asked, I don't know how many went to that function that was in Town Hall. She was asked about, how do you think the politicians will react to her criticism? And she said, I don't do politics, I do the law. And the law I administer and am asked to comment on is the law that Australia signed up to, be it third, be it the Convention on Refugees, but that's the law they signed up to. And not only that, Australia was part of the United Nations that appointed me to this position. So I think at the end of the day, as we become more and more a global community, those sort of international pressures are going to become more and more important. And I don't think Aboriginal people will be too shy about using it. I, don't, I think we'll ramp it up even these days because what options did we have back in 2007 except to go overseas and ask for international support? Now, when you have people like Navi Pillay or James and I, the Special Rapporteur on the situation of uh, Indigenous peoples, making comments about Australia in breach of its international obligations, it doesn't leave Australia too many places to go. So I think we've got to keep on, keep on doing that. I think that's at the end of the day that's the only option we have, like we did, or like our, our predecessors did back in the 60s, engage in the politics of embarrassment. Sometimes that's the only language. Like, after all, we don't have big mobs of money to pull out of a system and go on strike, so we've got to use any means available to us. And I think... Um, rather than think about it like any short-term plan, I think we've got to actually have an eye on the, on the long-term for this because that's got to be part of our long-term plan. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud to go to the United Nations now and tell them about the situation, particularly in the Northern Territory. You know, the hurt that our people feel. And, and, and I think you can only experience this if you're not part of the dominant culture. The hurt our mob feel when they started going into shops with these basic cards and they were being treated differently to other Australians. And the hurt we feel at the political system when some of the most important legislation to ever go before this country took about five and a half hours of debate to go through two houses of parliament. And when you look at things like the ATSIC legislation or the native title legislation that some people, probably including me, would argue for our benefit were the, were the most amended pieces of legislation to ever go before the Australian Parliament before they introduced the GST, which meant massive reform of the Tax Act. So it seems to me like the good things, the, the legislation that can produce benefit for us will take years to get through, yet they can take five and a half hours of debate to pass the legislation that set up 
and allowed our people to be discriminated against on the basis of race. And I don't think we should let Australia get away with that, to be quite honest. I don't think we should. Because the hurt our mob feel about that is, is just extreme. Just totally extreme that we've been... We, I've, I've given up framing it around legislation. I'm now talking about the hurt that we feel when we're discriminated against. And some of those people who took five and a half hours to debate that should somewhere down the tracks take a bit of a heart. You know, Roy and HG say, walk into the Hall of Mirrors and take a long, hard look at yourself. So thanks for the question. I, I, I think international pressure is something that we always will have in our toolkit and we'll always be happy to pull out. Ladies and gentlemen, we thank Nick Wood. That brings us to an end in tonight's proceedings. Mick has touched on a whole range of issues, but the things that struck me most profoundly were his reflections on some very simple issues. The issue of hope, the issue of trust, and the issue of talk. And it seems to me that the agenda that Mick has outlined ahead of Australia and the challenge that we face will be one that we will easily and productively manage if we can keep those three things alive in our hearts. A notion of trust, of hope and of talk. There's an old Arab saying that finishes that says, he who has hope has everything. And I think Mick has pointed quite rightly tonight that we should have some hope that we as a country can embrace the very difficult challenges of constitutional reform, of looking at ourselves and working out what we want to be as a nation into the next century quite clearly. The tasks aren't necessarily easy, but we should have some hope that we can deal with them well. Mick, thank you very much for being part of this week of uh, Reconciliation Week with us. There are other events that are going on. We had flag raising today for the first time. Aboriginal flags fly on the flagpole above the clock tower. We have the, let's face it, photographic exhibition across in the Fisher Library, and if you get a chance, go and have a look at it. It is an incredibly powerful expression of the hurt that Kinchler boys felt in that institution. There are visits to the Koori Centre, I think, on Thursday of this week. There is the sea of hands out the front and there is also, I think, about 700 kids, 200 kids, coming from various schools, Aboriginal kids, coming from various schools around Sydney to spend a day in this place so that they can't get a sense about what their future might hold for them if they take a bold step to come to university. Thank you very much for coming out on a windy, wet Monday night. I hope Mick's presentation has given you some food for thought and as you walk out the door going home tonight I would hope that you might have in your ears those very important words from Audrey Newknuckle. They make you think, they make, you, they make your heart turn every time I hear them. Thank you very much and have a good night. <laughs>